Father in heaven, Lord, you are a God who works all things um, for your own glory and for the good of those who love you. And you are a God who is faithful and a God that we can trust. And I pray, Lord, that today as we hear your word, as we uh, listen to you, we pray um, that you would help us to trust you more. I pray, Lord, um, you'd give me the words to speak. Um, you'd help um, us. Help us to love you. Help us to encourage one another. We thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for bringing us all here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am so glad and so grateful to be here. And in case we haven't met, hopefully I think we have. I have met everybody. But um, my name is Aaron Fesenmeyer. I'm the pastor here at York Evangelical Free Church. And uh, um, I just want to open up this up this word to you this morning. We're going through an eight-week series. And I promise sometime this week I'll have the audio of the first uh, sermon, in case you missed it, up on, up on the website. Um, but an eight-week series going through the book of Psalms. And... Uh, um, a series called Worship Is. Remember last week we looked at worship is real life, particularly life in, in the Word of God. And this morning, if you want to grab your Bibles um, or one in the pew in front of you, we're going to be in Psalm 2. So all, right after the, the first one we studied and right almost right in the middle of the book. So if you would turn there, um, and as you're turning there, just a kind of quick show of hands, um, I'm assuming it maybe I'm making maybe making an assumption. Has anybody ever been to a live music concert? Yes, yes, yeah, pretty almost everybody. Has anybody or or if you can still count your kids' band concerts, I, I promise you, you can still do that. Um, well, I come to you and I confess that I'm a bit of a city slicker and uh, that I greatly enjoy classical music and. Okay, all right, we got yay. Thank you. <laughs> um, and uh, going to the orchestra. And I don't know if you guys, have, if, if all of you have ever been to one of, one of these kind of things. It's a, quite, quite, quite a process, actually. But I want to share a little bit with you about what goes on right, as, right before a concert. So you get there. Usually people are dressed somewhat nice. And um, you go into this big auditorium or concert hall and uh, you're led there by an usher, and usually you get find your seat, and as you're finding your seat, you, you see the stage lit up, and everything's lit up, and the musicians are already out there, um, some of them kind of wandering around getting stuff set up, and others are playing a little bit, trying to get their, get warmed up, and uh, um, just get, get those final few touches on, on whatever their part is in, in the music before, before they start it. And then if there's a choir, which is, when it's orchestra and choir, it's awesome. Um, and they don't really, they've already warmed up at some point, so they're usually just talking about whatever. And so while you wait, there's a, there, you can hear little bits in here of what sound like music. Um, but when you put it all together, including the noise of the, of the audience as they're coming in, as, as, as you're talking and that kind of thing, if you stop and listen, it, sound, it doesn't sound like music at all. It sounds more like raucous noise. It's just cacophony, just here and there, all sorts of stuff that don't quite sound quite right. So this keeps going, and then, then at a certain point, lights start to dim, 
and people started getting quiet. And the musicians on the stage slowly stopped playing and slowly stopped talking. And then a relatively brief set of events occur. If you've ever been there, somebody comes out from the from one of the one of the stage wings called the concert master has a violin. Everybody claps, yay! And because why are we why are they clapping? Well, part of it's tradition, but part of it is because the music about is about to start. And so what they do they they come they bow and they point to a um, usually the first chair oboist um, in in the orchestra and they tune the whole orchestra around a single note around a single sound they sit down and then it's then it becomes quiet again and depending on the level of drama that the conductor wants to in, enforce it's usually either a really short time or it's really fast time anyway conductor comes out the orchestra stands up everybody claps because this time it's the real deal the music is about to begin Everybody takes their spot or their seat, or the conductor stands up on the podium, lifts his hands, makes sure everybody's ready, and up, down, and there we go. And the music starts. It's, it's no longer cacophony. It's, it's music. It's actually unified sound. So, in case you're wondering, you should be, why in the world am I telling you about the experience of a classical orchestra concert right before we dive into Psalm 2? Well, what happens in an orchestra concert happens all over the world in different ways. So if you've ever turned on a TV, if you've ever been on social media, if you've ever opened up a newspaper or, or read any current events in any of the media since they were invented, um, you may have noticed that it sounds an awful lot like a cacophony, an awful lot like a bunch of noise. And you take enough in and it's, it's deafening. There's a lot going on in the world, and it sure doesn't seem like it's unified. Or maybe you haven't turned any those things on, and you're in the silence, and in the silence, the noise of your own heart just starts bubbling up. And maybe that's why you want to keep that noise around you, so you don't have to face the noise that's going on in there. So in a way, we're both the musicians... In God's world, musicians making the racket on the stage, and were the audience longing for the, the noise to go away and the real music to start. But what if we don't get to pick the music? When God, the conductor, raises his baton, what are we going to hear? Are we going to follow what he set out to do? Are we going to storm out of the concert hall? Or are we going to trust and worship and make beautiful music with him? So that's where I'd like us to go this morning. So if, you'd, if, you're, if you're there, please, I'd like to invite you to stand as we, uh, in honor of reading God's word this morning, Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You can have a seat. Did you hear the noise in the psalm? And did you did you hear hear or notice when the music started? We're going to look at four realities today as we read this and study this Hebrew poetry, communicating to us that worship, true worship, is trust. And it's when we trust that we hear God's music silence the noise that our souls long to have stopped. So what's this first reality? Verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Psalm starts right out, right out of the gate, not with the beautiful melody and the harmony that goes with it, but with the noise. Humanity's problem is distrust. If you're following along with your notes, you can fill in the blanks. They're up on the screens. Um, we can go that way. Humanity's problem is distrust. Or we could rightly say, people have a problem even with the right, the highest, and the best authority. So the psalmist asks the question that all of us are asking, why is there so much noise? Why is there so much raging? Why is it that when we look out at what's going on, we see problem after problem and news media outlets are problem after problem, crisis after crisis, or in our day, outrage after outrage. There we go again. Somebody's mad on the internet. Why the knockdown drag out fights in the home? Why people driving like maniacs on I-80? Or in town? I thankfully have not seen that yet, so praise God. Why do our hearts seem to starve for a place of rest, for, play, for tranquility? In a word, distrust. We don't trust one another. And we don't trust ourselves in reality. So what's our solution to what's our solution to the mess? Well, Psalmist says, and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. We scheme. We spend our energy, our time, our resources trying to solve the noise on our own. But actually, it looks like, it looks like what happens here is that in doing so, we're actually just contributing to the noise. We're contributing to the raging. The psalmist also takes this one step further. It's not just that we don't trust one another. 
And it's not just that we don't trust ourselves, even though we will make song after song and story after story of how it's supposedly right to follow your heart, to trust yourself. Our biggest problem is that we distrust God. The kings set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Why? Against the Lord and his anointed. From the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich and the most powerful of the most powerful, we distrust God. That is our state. And we distrust God so much that we spend our time, our energy, our focus, our resources on verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So our solution, let's get rid of God. He's clearly the problem. And as for his word, their bonds, their cords, that's what we in our of ourselves see God's word as. Cords, bonds, chains to keep us enslaved. And for those who hate God, who are trying their own million and a half ways to try and exalt ourselves, to save ourselves, God's decrees, God's laws, His word are like millstones around our, their, our necks. So we try to cast them off and get them off of us because we think that they enslave when actually what they do is set free. And that's exactly what King Herod and Pontius Pilate did in, in Jesus' time. You can turn there, but I'll just read it. Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 28. Quote, and when the disciples of Jesus heard it, when John and Peter had been released from prison, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Casting off the bonds and cords means crucifying Jesus. So that's, that's our solution. And when we embrace things today that are opposed to God, I thought of a few. If you, if you look at our, our lives and in our culture today, where are we trying to cast off the bonds and cords of God? Marriage, sexuality, greed, racial equality, equality between men and women, right and respectful treatment of men and women. Marketplace of ideas. Burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's our solution. <laughs> or we could say that's our solution. That's what all this is this is a this what this describes is a plan. The plan of people to get rid of God. And this is what all their work of self-saving achieves. Well, let's cast away God. 
the only one let's cast away the only one who has is everything he said he is has done everything he said he will do and will do everything he has set out to do who is infinite who knows our deeds our thoughts our motives for everything he who is sovereign and can override any and every decision we make this is our plan to get rid of him it's totally ridiculous now, if you weren't here last week, you guys uh, did something really great for our kids. You gave us uh, some uh, kind of a, a homecoming party, and we, we really appreciate it. We're very, very thankful for that. Um, one of, and you sent us home with a couple gift bags, and in that, in those gift bags, were something that the kids really love, and it's just a large balloon, an uninflated balloon. Well, you're supposed to blow the balloon up and tie it off. Well, we didn't do that. We decided to have a little bit of fun with it. Um, and you know how you blow a balloon up really, really big, but and then you hold it, but you don't tie it off? And you just squeeze it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you squeeze it with two fingers, and you can make the most ridiculous sounds. And then, if anybody's paying attention, don't do this with the ceiling fans on. But if you blow it up really big and you just let it go, it goes whoosh soars all sorts of manners of directions. Well, kids loved it. Absolutely loved it. It's a blast. And it's the most ridiculous thing. Now my question to you is after all the fun after all that fun's over and you've moved on to the next thing, well, what does that balloon look like? Well, it's just a spit-covered, smushed and lifeless piece of rubber. And I give you that ridiculous illustration because all that hot air, all that prep in getting the balloon filled, all of it being let out in a noisy way that's not good much for anything, is exactly what God says are plotting in vain and the kings of the earth setting themselves and the rulers taking counsel together results in. It's just noise. It's distrust. Okay, so humanity has gotten to have its say. To lay forth its grand plan. How does God respond? What does he have to say? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You know what this is in the concert? This is when the music starts. God gets to pick the king. And the music he, gets, he has chosen is the Hallelujah Chorus. God's response is actually a little bit like a kid laughing at the balloon. But we have to temper that a bit because this laughter is, is not just that the plan to reject God looks ridiculous, although it is. It's pathetic. In God's kingdom, this kind of plan evokes mockery. The Lord holds them in derision. He is the Lord all this contained in this name. Against who? The Lord. 
the Lord of heaven and earth, no matter what humanity does, we can't escape him. And yet, apart from us being saved, that's exactly what we'll try to do. We try to build our own way of escape from the misery that contributes to the nation's raging. And we try to set up our own kings and queens so that we don't have to deal with God. And that's why God laughs. That's why God holds them in derision. And God is just. And God is holy. And God is all-powerful. All those attributes are contained within the name, the Lord. So if people are trying to get rid of him, what do you think his response maybe should be? Have you ever thought of like, well, if I were God, how long would I last before I smote somebody? Yep, I wouldn't last very long. So that's the question. Like, why doesn't he just like, why does he even allow them to finish the words? Why not destroy them with fire? He doesn't need to put up with this nonsense. In truth, this raging is not just ridiculous. It's not just sending balloons across the room. Or warming up a bunch of musicians doing their own thing. No. I don't know you all that well yet. But I know a little bit of your sto- some of your stories. And when people are trying to burst God's bonds, in air quotes, and, quote, cast off his cords, as if they were enslaving when they are ex- actually freeing, when they try to do that, and you've seen it in your own life, when they try to do that, it's devastating. It's not just people saying stuff. People are doing things that ruin the lives of other people. When we rage against God. Because of a distrust of the Lord and His anointed global scale. Nations are destroyed. Economies tank. The weak of society are ta- and vulnerable are taken advantage of. When we try to set up our own kings and queens, people are being lied to. Families are wrecked. People get away with unspeakable things. And we see them get away with it in public. And apart from a trusting a Savior who can save, we too die, we're judged, and we're sentenced forever. So it's a small wonder that God doesn't just keep laughing. But he doesn't destroy them. He doesn't destroy us. At least not yet. There's a time, and we'll get to it. For all the noise that humanity makes and the speech they make to get rid of God's ways, God gets to speak. And if you've read anything in this book, you know that when God speaks, things happen. Worlds are made. Worlds are destroyed. 
people are crushed, but the dead come to life. Eyes are opened, lame people walk, people are made whole when God speaks. As for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God gets to choose the king. And you know it's actually it says he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying saying this. Do you know what's terrifying for this about this for someone trying to save themselves for humanity that's trying to position itself to put its own king in place? The terrifying thing is the most beautiful thing is that God has already beaten us to the punch. He has already set up his own king. He has already poured out the anointing oil on this king and exalted him. This king is the same one as the anointed. And you know what that word anointed is? Messiah in Hebrew. And in Greek, Christ. Hebrew kings were called the Lord's anointed, beginning with Saul, then moving to David and each successive king in his line. And the final ultimate king in that line is Jesus, the Christ. So when David, who wrote this psalm, writes this line, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who we sang about, Jesus. It's not merely terrifying to the surrounding nations that God should set up the Davidic kings of ancient Israel. No, no, no. It is terrifying that Jesus, God in the flesh, is God's chosen king. Now, if you've been in churches, it should not surprise you at all that this is going on. But may it take your breath away again. Of course, who is the most fit to rule but God himself? question is, do we know him, as he said in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Come to me, all who are who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That doesn't sound like bonds to be cast off or cords to be thrown away. As for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And that should fill us both with a sense of utter dread and at the same time with the strongest sense of relief. No corrupt king is going to sit where God puts his king. Nobody messes up in in God's throne. There is no injustice from the throne of God. He gets to choose the king, and his choice is flawless. His choice is trustworthy. And as the music continues, we don't just get to hear God the Father speaking of setting his king up on Zion, which is where God's presence is. We get to hear the Son himself speak. If distrust of God is humanity's greatest problem, then the King himself presents 
the greatest solution. Full trust of his father. Verse 7. I will tell of the, the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus is the king. He is savior and judge. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now we need to say, because there's a lot of false teaching going around about about this little phrase. This isn't about God creating or, quote, giving birth to Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses, and there are others, get this passage totally wrong. Jesus was not created. He was never given birth by God. He was born as a man, yes, but he was, has always been God's son. Actually, this was an issue in the early church, too. They called it Arianism. Saying that Jesus was actually lower than God, a created being. And that's where we get the Nicene Creed from the 300s that reads, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. How should we understand this? Acts 13, verses 32 through 33. The apostles understood this, and we should too, that this decree is actually the good news about Jesus' resurrection. So Acts 13, verses 32 through 33. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to his fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus already came into the world as the son of God. Look at his earthly ministry in the gospel before his resurrection, and he always, ident- he always is identified as the son of God. Today I have begotten you is actually crowning language. How did God make Jesus king? Jesus has always been God's son. But there is a point in history when he becomes king. When he's able to say to his disciples and he says to us, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How did God make him king? Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow you are my son the psalm says as in you are are this already today I have begotten you as in today 
I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now we need to be very humble about this in the church. Who is it here that makes Jesus king? Is it us? Do we make Jesus king? <laughs> Look at where humanity is in this, in this psalm. We're plotting, we're raging, we're in rebellion. Actually, that's why we crucified the Messiah, because we didn't want a king who was sent from God, who was God. So no, we don't make Jesus king. We don't have any authority of our own to make Jesus king. All authority is God's who gives it to Christ. So that has practical implications for as we gather the worship service. When we sing, sing songs like, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let us sing those kind of songs where it says, We crown him or crown him. Let us sing those songs from a posture of, we are laying ourselves down at his feet, acknowledging his authority that he already has over us. He is king, whether you and I say so or not. But may you be people who say he is and trust that he is. So it's clear from the rest of Scripture that when God the Father asked Jesus, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, Jesus took him up on that offer. And praise God that he did. That means everything is his. Now we could just move on to verse 10, but we need to deal with this verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What does he mean by that? And there are some churches, and maybe even you're thinking, wait, you're saying, thinking, wait, 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 wait. I don't think the psalm is talking about Jesus here. This isn't, Je this isn't the, the, the gentle Jesus who is teaching the crowds on the hillsides of Galilee and giving them bread to eat and fish to eat. No, this, this doesn't seem to be the Jesus who let the little children come to him. This doesn't seem to be the kind and healing Jesus who healed the blind and lame in the temple. Well, we need to understand that Jesus is both Savior and Judge. Gentle Jesus who told the people that on that hillside that they needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to be saved. Nice Jesus who warned his disciples that, it, that a person who keeps the children from coming to him would be better off having a millstone tied around their neck and being drowned in the sea. Or how about kind Jesus who flipped over tables like he's at a bar fight and whipped merchants in a holy rage in the temple and then healed the lame and the blind. This is to say that when it comes to Jesus, he is both and. And we must take him at 
as he is both and. You can't have him one way without the other. If you try to take him one way without the other, you get none of him. He is both, and it is good that he's both. Because here in verse 9, he's talking about nations who are still trying to push him away. Not those who worship him in trust. So what about the nation? What are the nations to do with this king that God has set up, with his son? Well, thank God he doesn't leave it to, leave us to guess about it. He doesn't leave the kings to guess about it. He doesn't leave the rulers to guess about it. It's pretty clear. Ten, verse ten. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Submitting to God in trust is true worship. That's the response that he expects of the kings who listen to to this, to the world who listens to the, the good news that he has set his king up already. We don't need to put our own king up there. We can't. We do a terrible job. He has set his king on the throne. His king is savior and he is judge. The question posed to us, to the world, is will we submit to that king? Will we humble ourselves and kiss the sun? As in bowing down at his feet and kissing his feet. Because we are unworthy to look in his eyes. Will we believe him? Will we trust him? And will we worship him? That's the, those are the questions that we need to ask today of ourselves. Today. Don't wait for, to answer these questions another day. Answer them today. Today, if you hear his voice, the scripture says, do not harden your hearts. Jesus didn't leave us in slavery. He didn't stay away and destroy us. God spoke to the rebellious kings, terrifying them in the desire that his good proclamation, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and you are my son. Today I have begotten you. He says those things that they would be heard and they would be trusted. For God desires that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But that does not happen if we do not trust. If we do not submit. If we do not believe. But God here gives rebellious, wicked kings with a wicked plan the opportunity to believe. The opportunity to trust. And he's giving us that as well. So have you ever wondered why and if it's a good thing for us to fear the Lord? Should we fear the Lord? Now, the most, common, the most common interpretation of this kind of fear is a, a reverent respect, a reverent fear. Even your translation may even say something like that, reverence or reverent fear. And this is right, that we should have a deep respect for God and his Christ. Absolutely. But it may not be fully complete. 
Because if you look at this context, there are some pretty, frankly, terrifying things going on. Jesus smashing the nations in pieces as if they were pottery. Jesus being angry and people perishing because of his wrath. If you're familiar with the line from C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a character called Mr. Beaver in the story who's talking to the main characters, the Pevensey children. And he says about the Christ figure, I'm totally spoiling it if you haven't read it, the Christ figure in the story, Aslan the Lion. And he says, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. And one of the children responds, Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This fear should not drive us away from God, but to him, because he's good. And when this passage says that his wrath is quickly kindled, it's not as though God has ever or will ever fly off the handle. Not, he doesn't have a temper problem. He is a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As some have said, he has a very long wick. But there is a point when the wick does burn out and the power keg underneath goes. And when it does, he will have, as he does here, given every opportunity to turn to him, to trust him, to believe in him, to be in him, as a refuge will we take the opportunity to be in the little in the in the tent in the refuge Jesus is not safe but he's good and he's safe to be in he's king of kings and lord of lords he will not bruise a broken reed scripture says but he will destroy rebellion by the word of his power the hand is continually put up against him, he eventually will take it down. A stone can crush a person, but can be used to make a refuge. The question we must ask ourselves today, church, is he our refuge? Is he our king? We, do we submit to him? Will we trust him? Worship is trust. Who or what we most deeply trust is who or what we worship. Is it God? Or is it someone else or something else? If it's anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are back to where we began. Why is there so much noise? Why are the nations raging? Why is there so much distrust in trusting the wrong things? But God in his mercy does not leave us to his own devices or to our own devices. He gives us the good news. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He has died to be able to save you and has been raised again and exalted the right hand of God. Will we trust him? Will we believe? When God the conductor gets up and, and starts the music, will we trust him? Will we enjoy the music that he's, he's given? Will we participate in trusting and believing him? 
the cacophony, the noise, doesn't go on forever. He has already set his king up on Zion, his holy hill, and he calls each one of us and all of us together to worship him, to worship him by trusting him. And we can trust him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, we come and confess that we are so slow to trust you. Lord, we want to cry out as the the father did in one of the stories. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Please help us to trust you, Lord. You are a trustworthy God. You have done nothing wrong. Nothing to deserve our distrust. And if we feel otherwise, please make it clear that you have set your king on Zion, your holy hill, and that we can come to you and we can find in you a refuge. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified. Help us to carry that with us as we go from here. Trust in you each step of the way, day by day. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Well, thank you for worshiping with us this morning. I would invite you to stand as we uh, are sent with a blessing from God's Word. This comes from passages I quoted in Philippians. It's a good one to land back on to encourage you and to keep your mind fixed on Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, verse 5. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. May He be your Savior. May He be your Lord. And may you go in His strength today. God bless you, church. You are dismissed.